Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. I'd love to go back to, to June 2018 and, and set the scene of, of obviously a story that we're all quite familiar with today um, and uh, of what's transpired with the boys over in Thailand. Um, but I could set this scene, I could try to do it as best that I could, but I think you're the master at, at, at trying to tell this, uh, this incredible story. Would you be happy to set the scene for us and, and what happened on you know, that final day and, and, and then obviously you getting involved? Yes, well, I have told the story a few times, so I should be all right to uh, <laughs> give you a bit of an intro. <laughs> um, so I had um, I just opened the newspaper one morning in uh, June eighteen, and I saw a tiny little, like a square inch of text in the second page of the newspaper saying twelve boys from a soccer team and their coach were missing underground, assumed to be in a cave in northern Thailand. And because of obviously my passion for caving and cave diving, but also uh, I'm I'm involved in volunteer cave rescue in Australia, so I, I really you know pricked up my ears at that and thought hello might be something here, um, and very quickly I learnt that a guy who lives in Thailand, an expat from Belgium who runs a diving business in Thailand had become involved and I knew this fella Ben Raymonance because I'd done an expedition um, with him the previous year over in Thailand exploring some caves. So I texted Ben and said, hey, what's going on? Are you involved in this thing? And he he was actually on his way in the car up to northern Thailand to go and see if he could help at all. Uh, so that was my first sort of inside knowledge of the thing and it just got bigger and bigger over the next week as they uh, started to search for these kids and try and dive into this cave, which was dry when the kids walked in, but flooded, you know, literally right behind them. Um, and they turned around to come out and suddenly there's water in, in where there was a dry passage. And unbeknownst to them, the monsoon rains had started, you know, a, a week or two early and had it had been raining over the back of the mountain out of view and suddenly water's come up through the ground whilst they're in the cave and they're, they're trapped. And um, the water kept coming up. Um, and um, they had to actually retreat further into the cave to find a high, bit of high ground where they could sit out uh, and await rescue. So over the next few days, the, the flooding got worse and worse and worse until the river actually started flowing out of the entrance to this cave. Now, that happens every year, predictably, in the monsoon season, but it had occurred you know, maybe nearly a month early on this occasion. So... For all intents and purposes, everyone assumed that the kids could well actually be dead already. They could have drowned. And um, But a local caver said there are a couple of high spots in that cave, so if they've managed to get to that point, they might be all right. So we need to get some more cave divers on site. And um, that's when they called the British divers over Rick and John, who, again, I already knew through previous expeditions. You know, it's a pretty small pool I guess um, you know in, in cave diving circles there's not I don't understand why I mean I thought it should be as popular as AFL but apparently not so many people are interested in, in my chosen pursuit and uh, so the good thing is that at, at a sort of higher level I guess a lot of us know each other and and um, so word of mouth's going around and suddenly now there's three or four guys over there that I that I already know quite well so I guess it was only a matter of time before um, you know there was a chance that 
uh, I might get invited to go. And I had actually, to be honest, been gently angling for that, you know, with my involvement in Cave Rescue. I just had a sense that as a doctor as well, if they find these kids alive, I had, I had a real strong feeling that I could be of use over there. I never thought it would be as an anaesthetist. I just thought it would be to provide some medical care to these kids if they were alive still and while, while we worked out how to get them out. So that's, uh, I guess that's the background to it all. And on day nine after the kids went missing, the two British divers made that final breakthrough into chamber nine where the kids were and found them alive. Um, and they had had no food at all for that nine days. They'd just been drinking water, so they'd lost a lot of weight. They were starting to get pretty shaky and um, dizzy when they stood up and stuff, but they were alive. And um, that's the point I think the whole world really became aware of this story and it became a major international event. Correct me if I'm wrong as well, but the, the before that, um, you know, the Thailand Navy had been there, the US Navy had been there to try and find the kids, and it was Rick and John that were the ones that actually found them uh, on, on day nine. And, and there was a bit of hesitation to actually let them there because you had like this, you know, the, the two navies trying to control and then there was these two just from everyone else from the public, random random guys from the UK coming over to, to dive. Well, exactly. And, you know, the Thai Navy SEALs, the most elite uh, operators in the in the Thai military perhaps, um, had been on site from about day two and diving, trying to get through. Um, but what we've learnt many, many times, sadly, over the years is that cave diving is such a specific diving skill, very specific training, very specific equipment, that even the most elite Navy divers are not necessarily equipped for that environment. And it actually reflects very well on the courage of those guys that they were having a go because it was incredibly bloody dangerous for them. And sadly, as we know, one of them ended up um, dying in the cave trying to take some equipment through. So when Rick and John arrived, um, you know, they look a bit like me. They're just, you know, middle-aged white men who have got this weird hobby and a lot of our gear is homemade. I mean, we look like a dog's breakfast, to be honest. You know, Rick especially loves his homemade gear. So he's got this, um, you know, he's got a wetsuit, he's got holes in the knees and he's got this homemade harness and he's got a, a, a tyre, a car tyre inner tube as his buoyancy device on his back. It looks like a big black donut. I mean, it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> and you can imagine the Thai Navy SEALs all spit and polish and, you know, you know, gung, gung-ho guys looking at this fella and going, serious? Is this the best that the West has to offer? This is our hope of salvation. So they actually said, you guys cannot go in the cave. It's too dangerous. And Rick and John were going, well, you know, actually we do know what we're doing. So they had to prove themselves. And, um, you know, they started to do that by, by getting, making some distance into the cave and always laying a rope behind us so that you can always find your way back out again because that's sort of rule number one of cave diving, always leave a, uh, a string of peas to, to follow back out again. You mentioned before about um, cave rescue. Was this your first try at cave rescue or did you, had you actually done some rescue previously? Yeah, sadly it was, well, maybe happily, it was the first uh, live rescue but I'd done some body yep. recoveries before and um, but I had actually been running a course based around the principle that we might need to get someone who was injured or sick through a section of flooded cave out to the surface and that idea came about through purely selfish interest. I was out on the Nullarbor plane diving with my mate Craig who ended up being at the rescue with me in about 2008 and we were four and a half kilometres underground uh, through the water and surfaced in this dry chamber 
and then we were carrying our equipment across this dry chamber so sort of hopping from boulder to boulder carrying scuba tanks you know it's probably the most dangerous part of the whole outing and i remember saying to him what would happen if one of us fell over and broke our leg here you know or hit our head who or how would someone rescue an injured person you know four and a half k's back underwater out to the entrance and based on that idea i just couldn't let it go and so i I came home and i got together a bunch of experienced cave divers got the police divers and we just had this big sort of think tank over the course of a weekend and ran some scenarios and from that i put together a bit of a course and i started running the course for as many cave divers as i could basically so that if this ever eventuated then at least we'd have done a bit of preparation and given it some thought so by the time i got asked to go to thailand you know, I had all this theoretical and practical knowledge based on practicing on my mates, essentially, um, plus having moved some dead people through underwater caves, which, you know, wasn't what we were hoping to achieve with this course. But, you know, it's all good practice, I guess, when it came to moving the kids out. Incredible. When did you finally get the call up? How did that all sort of transpire? Was it, I know you said before, you were already hinting that you were really keen to get involved. Um, do you remember where you were and when you got the call and, and how quickly you were on the flight over? Yeah, well, I had continued. Once I heard Rick in particular was over there, I was really pleased to hear that Rick and John um, were involved because I knew, I mean, these guys are, you know, my heroes in, in cave diving. They are, they, are, they are literally the best around. And when I heard they were there, I started texting Rick and saying, you know, we're here in Australia. It's kind of I felt like it's kind of our patch as well, you know, we're, you know, part of the Asia-Pacific region, you know, Australian Cave Rescue should be involved if it kicks off. So Rick was sort of telling me how things were on the ground and then this big breakthrough came when Rick and John finally found the kids. Um, so our communications continued and then it was about three days after the kids were found, um, Rick had texted me that morning at about half past six in the morning and said, look, honestly, I don't know what we're going to do. That I can't see any way these kids are coming out alive. Um, we've got no means of getting them out through the cave. We can't just dive them out. They'll just panic very, very quickly because it's like two and a half kilometres out, about a three-hour cave dive and not an easy cave dive. It was pretty gnarly. So diving them out under their own steam was out of the question. They were trying to pump out the water. That wasn't working. And the rains were going to be getting heavier and heavier. And, um, you know, the original flood conditions that Rick and John faced were actually so dangerous they couldn't dive for the first few days so he said if it goes back to that that's the end of it you know the kids are stuck so we need to do something and it was actually his idea that he texted to me he said what do you think about sedating the kids to bring them out I said, that is ridiculous don't even never speak of it again kind of thing you know because um, i could think of a hundred ways that you, the kids would die if you anesthetize them and then try and put them underwater for three hours i mean you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that's a bad idea um but he said oh well, maybe you should come over and have a look at that because i can't think of anything else so i um agreed to come over and he spoke to some australian government people that were already on the ground the federal police were there helping and so canberra called me about an hour later yeah there was sort of that that morning i was actually in the operating theater and i got this call and um i said yep happy to go and uh, by the way i need my mate craig to come with me because i need a, another safe pair of hands to keep an eye on me and and the plan and they went oh no i don't know about craig you know because i was sort of already on the government books for various uh response teams uh, with my work with the ambulance service but craig was a bit more of an unknown quantity to them so they were a bit uh, reluctant to have 
some other random involved, but I managed to say, well, I'm not going if he doesn't go kind of thing. So there we were. We're both on our way. <laughs> what was it like landing there? Um, obviously, there with Rick and John, the plan's been laid. That was the idea. Did you actually think that that was going to happen? Was it was the plan to actually put the kids to sleep? Like how much did you actually think in your head? I know doctors are always very, very realistic on plans. Did you really think this was actually going to work? I had 100% uh, certainty that those children could not survive if we anaesthetised them um, and, and pushed them underwater for three hours. And, you know, that came from my knowledge of diving and diving equipment, from my work as an anaesthetist, but also from this this training that we'd been doing for the last 12 or 13 years. I mean, I had actually, I'd even practised myself pretending to be unconscious and being taken through a cave underwater. And even though we're using these full face masks, which will seal all the way around your face so you don't have to be awake to hold the mouthpiece in your mouth, even with that I found that the mask would gradually fill up with water if I didn't take active steps to, to clear it. So I just was absolutely certain that the kids would drown in their mask or a hundred other ways they could die, which probably haven't got time to go into, but, you know, I could think of so many ways they would perish and not one way that it could work. And, you know, it was totally unprecedented. No one had ever done such a thing before. So my view when I left Australia was that I'm going to help, but I'm definitely not going to anaesthetise those boys. And I guess um, the next question is, well, why did I change my mind? And it was really having spent 24 hours on the ground and sort of asking all the questions I needed to ask and actually going to visit the boys myself and seeing where they were that I realised that they they had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die in the cave because, you know, the rains would come and they'd be trapped in there so they'd starve or die of infection or whatever, or we give this crazy idea a go and it you know, whilst I didn't think it would work, at least we'd be doing something to try and help them. How long had they been in there when you arrived? What, what day were we at? Uh, I think we're up to day 13 or 14. I think they ended up in there 17 days total. Unbelievable. And what was the actual logistics around this? Like, I can imagine it's not as simple as just putting them to sleep and diving them out. Like, how narrow were these passages how did it actually even transpire? Did you have to take in the wetsuits, take in all the gear, like train the kids? I'm imagining there's language barriers in there. Um, how long did it take to actually convince them and explain what was actually going to happen? Yeah, well, all those things, you've sort of hit the nails on the head, really. Um, so Craig and I, the first the first night we were there, we, we just spent the evening talking to the Brits, the British guys about the cave itself, making sure it sounded like it was actually safe and sensible to even dive in there. You normally wouldn't dive in a cave that is actively flooding. Um, so the water level was at, at, at a state where it was reasonable to be diving, um, but we had to kind of keep a close eye on the weather. And I spent, as I mentioned, that 24 hours just asking all these questions, you know, where's the water pumping up to? Can we drain the cave to just swim the kids out or walk them out? And the answer was no, you know, we're holding on, but once the rains come back, um, then the cave's going to reflood again and no one will get back into the cave and probably not for another three to six months. So, you know, and the forecast said we had pre we probably had three or four days until that happened and then it's game over. So we had to make plans pretty pretty fast so um, I kind of insisted on diving the cave the next day 
even though it was almost a wasted day, I just needed to, A, make sure I was safe in the cave and that I could manage it myself, and B, just go and see the kids and, and look them in the eye and have a look around the environment I was going to be in if I was going to do this anaesthetic plan and just make the whole thing a bit less theoretical and a bit more concrete in my mind. And so Craig and I dived the cave the next day, and while we did that, um, the Brits and the US Air Force guys got some volunteers from the local swimming swimming club, some local kids, and they took them to the pool and started to work on the system that we were going to use in terms of you know dressing them in wetsuits. Did we have the right size wetsuits? I mean, the smallest kid turned out to be 29 kilos, so they're tiny kids, some of them. So you know, finding a wetsuit for that guy is not that easy. Um, you know, how are we going to dress them in the diving equipment? Would the full face masks even fit these tiny little boys? All this sort of stuff. And then they practice swimming these volunteers around in the swimming pool while the kids, you know, pretended to be asleep. So that all seemed to work, um, at least with awake kids. And um, so, and, and by then I'd had a chance to look at the cave, visit the kids, explain to the kids through one of the Navy SEALs who was in there who spoke English explain to them what we thought the plan might be if we come back the next day to do it. So, and and the kids, to be fair, were completely on board. I mean, you know, they'd been sitting in there for nearly two weeks. They had been sitting on damp mud in T-shirts and shorts, shivering their asses off, uh, hungry and pretty scared, as you can imagine. So they were definitely up for anything that we could suggest. They just, they, were, they would have done whatever we told them be honest to, at that stage to come out and their morale was really good i was really impressed what, what do you remember from like this plan as well like with with obviously putting the kids to sleep um it had been agreed upon but was there still some people that weren't on board with it like was it totally agreed upon with the government and and the seals and were they everyone on the same page or was there still people going no we shouldn't be doing this look not that i was aware of um everyone who was directly involved in the plan you know made this agreement to to pursue it and everyone gave 110% effort and support once the plan was made. But the point up to the decision was very fraught, you know, lots of robust discussions, um, lots of meetings with ministers and governors and, you know, the prime minister on the phone and the king's guard in the room reporting back to the king. And, um, you know, we had to... You know, I never tried to convince anyone that this was a good idea because I felt it was a terrible idea. Um, but I did tell people what I was prepared to do, what I was prepared to attempt. But ultimately, the decision to do this or not was up to the ties. And um, that that night after Craig and I dived the cave, we, we were up till nearly three in the morning in meetings, um, you know, trying to uh, thrash this out. And in the end, they said, all right, go home. Uh, have a couple of hours sleep and we'll tell you in the morning whether this is going ahead or not. And uh, it was that next morning, the Sunday morning, that um, we were told, yep, it's all go, so off you go. What, what do you remember of that first dive, that first rescue? Um, sorry, the first rescue going in when you actually knew, all right, this is a plan, we're going in and we're going to get the first boy out. Well, I started that day by teaching the cave divers how to give an anaesthetic because it only actually dawned on me fairly late in the piece that the, the injection I was going to give the kids into their leg muscle, a uh, drug called ketamine, was probably only going to last for about three quarters of an hour. But these kids had a three-hour trip out of the cave and so they had to be kept asleep, which meant they were going to need at least two or three more injections on the way out. Now, giving an intramuscular injection is not a difficult skill, but... 
the decision to give the injection and how much dose and, you know, uh, how to do it in the dark or underwater or, you know, never having even put a needle and syringe together for most of these guys, you know, it's pretty daunting, let alone the courage it takes to sort of be an anaesthetist when you are not an anaesthetist. I mean, it was scary for me. I can't imagine what it was like for these other guys. So basically I gave them this 30-minute lecture on anaesthesia they all had a practice uh, injecting an empty water bottle, thus signing off their practical competencies. So it took and, you uh, 10, 10 plus years and took them 30 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which uh, maybe it doesn't say much for the difficulty of being an anaesthetist. <laughs> but um, no, what I think it does say, firstly, is the, the courage of the guys who agreed to do it, but also how um, good ketamine as a drug is in this particular setting. Uh, it's not good in nightclubs, I would point out to your listeners, but because um, it has some horrible side effects. But in terms of, um, you know, using in emergency settings like this, we use it quite a lot in the field in car accidents and all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, you're not really worried about the finer points of how people feel. You're worried about people staying alive. So uh, it, it is a good drug in that situation. So the first boy that you, you swim up to, you're there, um, obviously in the wetsuit, he's got his face mask on. You put him to sleep. Does it go to plan? Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I wasn't really sure what it was what it was supposed to look like at that spot at that at that point. But yeah, so um, Jason, uh, one of the Brits, was the going to take the first boy out. Uh, Jason's particularly courageous sort of bloke. He's always up for being the first at, at anything. So he goes up the hill to see the kids, make sure the kids got his wetsuit on, a little buoyancy jacket. Uh, hood and so forth and um, then brings the kid down the hill kid sits on my lap I'm sort of half in the water so he's just sitting on my knee and I give him the two injections to make him go to sleep and once he's asleep we then put the mask on his face and because you know they're quite claustrophobic things I didn't want to upset the kids any more than than necessary once the mask is on his face then um, Jason would go off and get his own diving equipment ready because he's going to take this boy all the way through the cave uh, while I look after the next kid and um, I then need to make sure the mask is sealing properly on the kid's face so I do a few experiments just pushing his face into the water and then lifting him up and checking again to see if any water's gone inside do that two or three times until I finally am happy and then lie him, lie him down face down in the water just uh, let him sort of bubble and breathe away there we also had decided to tie the kid's hands behind their backs and tie their feet together and two reasons for that firstly to make sure they're as streamlined as possible so that when Jason for example got to the one of these very tight restrictions he, he would be able to push him through like a bit of a dart so that he wasn't getting tangled up or hooked up on anything um, and um, also if the sedation suddenly wore off underwater we didn't want the kid to panic and reach up and rip his mask off or even more importantly, rip the regulator out of Jason's mouth and, and drown him because, you know, a 15-year-old soccer player is pretty strong. So, um, you know, sort of two reasons for trussing the kids up a bit. But I can tell you morally that felt almost as bad as pushing an unconscious child's face into the water. It was um, a bit of a, a new low in terms of my career at that point. I felt that, you know, this was probably euthanasia, not, not rescue that we were doing here. Um, but um, as you know, we got those first four kids out successfully on the first day and then repeated it for the next two days. What was it like getting the first one out? Is it, do you remember the feeling? Do you remember, was it more just relief? Do you remember the, the reception from 
everyone else that was there? Were they just like, what the hell? What was what was the response like? Yeah, well, I wasn't aware of how any of this had gone until I got out of the cave at the end of the day because we had no communications with the outside wow. world. We were a long way underground. And so I was just sending these kids off one by one. And apart from on the first day with the first couple of kids, I had no idea whether they'd even survived the first small dive that they had to do. So we got Rick Stanton in the next dry chamber along to uh, come back in and tell me what the result was of that first dive. I was supposed to wait for him to come back after the first kid, but I actually forgot and uh, let him uh, and sent the second child through, which caused a bit of trouble in the in the next chamber because they weren't quite prepared for that. But anyway, finally I, I remembered and then Rick came back and said, well, the first two have survived that first little dive. So, so far so good. Because, sorry, they, they had to go from different chambers, didn't they, and get re-injected again and, yeah. and go back. Yeah, so there were five separate dives, if you like, over the two and a half kilometres on the way out. And in between the dives, they're either just floating down the river uh, with their airspace above them or in a couple of spots to be picked up and carried over some rocks and things then back into the water again. A bit like uh, whitewater rafting, I suppose, uh, with some <laughs> underwater sections. So, yeah, so until I got out at the end of the day, I didn't know whether I was going to be told that all four had died Half had died or all successful. So, yeah, I was pretty happy to hear that they'd, they'd made it out, but completely surprised as well. I can imagine it'd be a massive relief, a surprise, but then also that dawning factor, like, fuck, we've got to go back tomorrow and do that again. Yeah, well, in fact, that realisation was a real low point for the three-day rescue for me because after the first day having had some success, then suddenly everything's changed, right? Like the expectations are, well, you've got it right. And so if someone dies now then fingers are going to be pointed. Well, you must have done something wrong. And um, so that night I remember actually feeling more pressure than any other time um, during the rescue. Um, and it was uh, after the second day was successful, then I just started to feel cautiously optimistic that maybe we're going to actually get away with this. There Was there any hairy moments? I know that the whole moment, the whole experience was was hairy and there was always points that were, were bubbling up. But was there anything in there that you were – on the, on the second two days, it was like, oh, geez, this one, this one might not make it or this one could be a bit trickier than the others? Yeah, well, a couple of the kids had chest infections, so I could hear them coughing away, and that often causes trouble anaesthetising kids. They can often sort of hold their breath or have other medical problems arise under anaesthesia. And actually it was the, f- the, f- the last boy on the first day that came probably the closest to dying. Um, he was not really breathing properly under the anaesthesia and so Rick was the one who was taking him through. So knowing that he wasn't quite right, I quickly put my gear on and followed him out of the cave and when I got through that first dive, um, I found Rick and Craig who was waiting there to help you know, look after the kids as they came through. I found them with this kid pulled up on the beach there and um, looking pretty ordinary, they, they were worried about him. He didn't seem to be breathing at all. So I quickly got out of my gear and, and in fact, he, he wasn't breathing. He was really blue and I was just to give him just about to give him mouth to mouth and I just uh, opened his airway by pushing on the back of his jaw. And that's actually pretty painful stimulus to do that. Um, so it's not a bad test to make sure people really are unconscious and um, that was enough to make him take a breath. So... It was pretty close. Uh, I reckon, you know, another couple of minutes, he would have been in real, real strife. All right, uh, that's yeah, it's ex- extremely stressful. I can, I can also remember watching um, parts of the, of the documentary as well. I think one of the last boys, 
um, on the last day might have been the one that you were alluding to earlier that was the 29 kilo young young man and, and the face mask was just too big for his head and yeah. talking through how, how stressful that was that was to try and actually get him out. Yeah, well, I didn't realise that the last kid was so small. I thought all the small kids had gone. So we'd save these because um, we had five to do on the last day instead of the usual four. We didn't have enough of the masks that we'd come to trust and, and like. So we'd taken two other masks in just for, you know, we thought, well, we'll just have to make it up as we go along with these other masks. And we had to get that all those kids out that day because the forecast was really you know, um, threatening then. In fact, it had started raining the day before and we were worried about the, the water levels in the cave. So I'm there with Jason, the last the last kid, the last guy, and down the hill comes this kid and I'm just I'm looking at him and I'm just like horrified how small he is. He's the smallest of all the boys. He's, he's the 29-kilo kid. And I'm looking at Jason going, these masks are not going to fit this boy. And um, but he's got to come out and he's in the water and so the clock's ticking because he'll start to get cold and so I anaesthetise him and we try the first mask and it's just like one and a half times the width of his face you could put your hands in the sides and it was just going to fill up with water straight away so it was just out of the question so then we had this little pink mask that looked like a toy compared to the commercial diving gear that we had been using and it was all sort of soft and flopping around and it just didn't look safe at all. Um, and, you know, Jason's really worried that he's going to be the guy who kills the one and only kid for the trip. And in the end, we sort of padded out his hood. We put some foam under his hood to make his face bigger and we got it sealed on there, but it looked terrible. And I said, Jason, I'm sorry, mate, you're just going to have to go because otherwise we're going to have to re-anesthetise the kid. He's getting colder by the minute and he has to go today, so... Off you go. So off he went and Jason, you know, um, took such good care of that kid. He protected his face to make sure the mask didn't get uh, bumped or knocked or anything. And it must have been a hell of a stressful for dive for him. But, yeah, they got him out safely. I can't imagine how stressful that would have been, um, getting the last one out when that seems like the hardest one to, to get done. Do you remember the elation of finally finding out that it had all been successful? Do you remember coming out of the cave with... All, four day, uh, all, all of the boys rescued and just thinking, what the fuck did we just do? Yeah, well, when I got to chamber three, which is the final chamber that you reach when the diving's finished um, and the Americans are there to sort of help me out of the water, I ended up taking one of the kids that last little dive because uh, one of the other divers actually had a bit of a near miss himself. So I took Jeez. the kid from him on my way out and uh, took the kid through that section and uh, handed off this kid and the Americans are going, that's it, mate, they're all alive. Fantastic, because Jason and his boy had already been through. And I just, honestly, I was so exhausted after four days of, you know, two or three hours sleep a night, 12 hours underground each day, late night meetings, and I was just so knackered. I Honestly, I didn't – it took a while to sink in. But then we all stood around in Chamber 3, all the divers and lots of the ties. Uh, we're still waiting for the Navy SEALs who are still in the cave to come out. And we're all just standing around with these stupid grins on our face looking at each other. No one could really talk very much. Um, and it was just, you know, you could just, uh, if a look counted for anything, we could just tell that it was just an amazing moment and uh, one to be savoured. But uh, we're all too knackered to party that night, I'm afraid. Thanks for listening to another Producey podcast. If you enjoyed the show, that'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, subscribe, tap the bell, leave a review, or even share with one of your friends, or you could do them all. 
If you want to get in touch to share feedback, suggest a guest or advertise with one of our podcasts, then email hello at producer.com. Thanks for tuning in. Ilyxx.